There was a wealthy farmer who had a beautiful young daughter. He cared for her more than anything on earth and called her his heart's delight. Many young men came to visit her and asked for her hand in marriage, but she wasn't interested in any of them. Then, one day, she met a boy who worked in the stables, and she fell in love with him. The boy came from a poor family, and the farmer did not think he was a good enough match for his daughter. To keep them apart, he sent the girl to live with her uncle, who had a farm 50 miles away. After the girl left, the boy fell into a deep depression. Trying to forget about his lost love, he took a job as a sailor and went away to sea. On the voyage, the young man got sick and gradually wasted away. When he died, everyone said it was of a broken heart. When the farmer learned of the poor boy's fate, he felt so guilty that he could not bring himself to tell his daughter the terrible news. Unaware of her lover's sad end, the girl continued to dream about the bright future they would someday spend together. A year passed, and one dark night there was a knock on her uncle's door. When the girl opened the door, she found her lover standing there, holding the reins of a pale white horse. Your father asked me to come get you, he said. Is there anything wrong? asked the girl. You'll see when we get there, he replied. She quickly packed some clothes, and together they rode off into the night. She sat behind him on the horse, her arms clutched tightly around his waist. The moon is bright, and death is riding with us, he said. Are you not afraid? I am not afraid because I am with you, she replied. The boy complained of a headache. She put her hand on his forehead. You're as cold as clay, she said. I hope you are not ill. The girl tied her handkerchief around his head. They rode through the night, and before long, they reached the farm. The girl quickly got down from the horse and knocked on the door. Who's there? her father demanded. It's your daughter, she replied. Didn't you send for me? No, I certainly did not said her father. She turned to her lover, but he was gone, and so was the horse. They went into the stables and found the horse in a cold sweat and trembling with fear, but there was no sign of the boy. Terrified, her father finally broke down and told her the truth about her boyfriend's death. They went to see the boy's parents and decided to open his grave. When they lifted the lid of the coffin and peered in at the corpse, they saw that tied around his head was the girl's handkerchief. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone plus, has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This Mister telling you stories of the old. Family. There was this girl. It was back when we were a little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. 
Each week, we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again, what our fears, fables, myths, and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of you back to the show. Thank you so much for returning. From the dead. No. No. Okay, that's later. That's later. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Spoilers. But yes, thank you all for coming back to our lovely little nest we've made, the this, this safest of spaces and places for all of us to come together and talk about stories and facts and things. You all look lovely. I like that new top. And you were right. The bangs work. You mean the new top that you can win from our new contest? That's the one. That's the one. Fantastic. Let me borrow that top. So we you know, always ask for you to leave ratings and reviews, to call it on Twitter, you know, to contact us in some way, recommend us to your friend, your grandma. Show her how to use a, you know, computer or, you know what, burn her a CD or put it on a floppy disk and send it to grandma. I don't think it will fit. I'm sorry. <laughs> Copy 20 floppy disks and send it over. But we do have a new contest out because we just want to. No reason this time. We are going to give away one Just A Story t-shirt of your choosing for anyone that, that leaves a review on iTunes because we are very close to 100 reviews. And we would like to have a 100 reviews. And you know what? If it's not positive, you can't win. That's a rule. Throwing that out there. <laughs> It can be constructive criticism. But if you say I sound like anyone from reality television or someone from above the Mason-Dixon line, we're not friends, okay? So you have one month, one month, four episodes. and four episodes, we will announce the winner. And if you have left a review in the past, you are entered in the contest. Magic! Here's a fun thing you can do. Screen cap your review. And tweet it to us so that people know that the contest is going on. Oh, that's a good idea. So, other than that, other ways that you can get in contact with us are on our website. That's justastorypod.com. And there's where we keep artwork and image galleries and newspaper clippings and sources and links to other fun places like the merch shop from which you will be selecting your t-shirt when you win because I know it's you. You're the one I can tell. And this time, our exclusive t-shirt there for the next month will be the jackalope t-shirt. Yes, the the three hair slash three jackalope. Which has been oft requested. High demand for jackalopes in these parts. I think I hear one now. Singing along. Another thing you will find on our website is a link to our Patreon page. And there you will find another way to help support the show and gain access to fun rewards such as stickers, digital meetups, and extra episodes. And speaking of... We have a new patron. Sweet! No, that's that's the patron. Sweet. Sweet. Thanks, sweet. And also, we will be having our new patron-exclusive episode up about the Thone Stone. Oh, that is a very interesting stone indeed. As stones go, it's not quite Keith. It's not quite Mick. But it's pretty cool. One can say it's a message from the dead. One can. And if you would like to leave us a message not from the dead, you may call the Urban Legend Hotline, and that number is 512-222-3375. And there you can talk about your feelings, what your mom did to you that one time that still makes you mad, or tell us your favorite Urban Legends. So, Samantha, back to the story at hand. Yes, dear. Ah, today was brought to us by our dear friend... Dan Foytick of Ninth Story Studios. He is the mastermind behind things such as the Wicked Library and The Lift. 
which are excellent programs if I do say so myself. So thank you, sir. All right. So today's story is one that has been told and told and retold in many and many form. And as our dear friend child summarizes it, are a relation of a young man who a month after his death appeared to his sweetheart and carried her on horseback behind him for 40 miles in two hours and was never seen after but in his grave. Child is, like, literally a noted asshole in the annals of folklore. Like, if you read about him, people are like, yeah, he was brilliant, but he was kind of a dick. He composed Child's Ballads, obviously. We mentioned that in our Murder Ballads episode. Like a Child's Ballad. No, not like that. No, No, his last name was Child. Yes, no, I went through some heavy confusion when I first started reading about it. I was like, these are not for children. But he was all about collecting literary ballads important ballads now if you can imagine why a person would go into folklore and approach it like an elitist i will give you a cookie but he did and so he was very exclusive about what made it into his canon so he had strong feelings on a lot of things that he had to include because they were obviously source material for more important works Yes, and this was one of them. It's a ballad called, well, it's called Many Things. Mostly it goes by the Suffolk Miracle. Mm -hmm. And so it's from England. And he did include it because he thought that it was probably what was left over from a previous great ballad. He said, it is possible we have here the residuum of an old poem from which all the beauty and spirit have been exhaled (laughs) in the course of tradition. But as the ballad now exists, it is a vulgar ghost story without any motive. Oh, child. Oh, child. Child. So let's go through some of this. And you'll see it's it's really has some soul to it. Uh, really? Does it have a spirit as well? A spirit all its own? So two young lovers are separated by the woman's father because he is of low-born status. And that just will not do. So the father sends his daughter away. And while she's away to relatives far, far away, away from the man she loves, he dies. But as, she, as lovers are wont to do when you're far, far away from them, yes. yes. But she does not know this. And a month after his death, he appears to his sweetheart and carries her away on horseback, saying, I have your horse and your mother's cloak and your father's orders to take you home. She dressed herself for in rich attire and away she went with her heart's desire. Now during the ride, he complains that his head hurts. And she wraps her handkerchief around his head. A holland handkerchief she then took out and tied his head with it about. She kissed his lips and she then did say, My love, you're colder than any clay. I think that's the title I know it by. It is. It goes by that as well. Um, It also goes by the holland handkerchief. So they then arrive at her father's house. He goes to tend the horse while she goes inside. But then he cannot be found. She describes what happened to her family and they are in shock they are aghast agog they find the horse all in a sweat as if it had been riding hard now they go to open the young man's grave and they because f- that's what you do well, of course and they find her handkerchief wrapped around his head then early early at the break of day she found the grave where this young man lay where lay her lover though nine months dead with a holland handkerchief around his head what a twist it's a good twist it's a good twist so this is an old old ballad and it was originally printed as a broadside in the late 17th century 
but it was last seen in print in 1765 until modern like, folklorists got their hands on it. Right, and there's an obvious like theme that you see in stories like Vanishing Hitchhiker or some of the fraternity and sorority ghost stories we talked about with that element of forensic proof, that clue. Yeah, it's the Vanishing Hitchhiker. Definitely. Except this time, he's the one giving the ride. So, twist there, too. Yes. So, most likely, this ballad, I'm start off as a story, mm-hmm. and then became a ballad, mm-hmm. and then has become a story again. Right. And Child felt like this might have been tied to this story from Cornwall. We have a pair of lovers whose union the parents of the young man object, and they send him away on a long journey to India. To protect him from the charms of that girl. Wanton harlot. So they lose touch for many years. Then one November night, a ship is wrecked in a storm off the English coast. On board is the young man who dies without even being sustained by his strong desire to see the girl he loves. Now on the evening of his funeral, as the girl is preparing to lock her door, she sees a deathly pale horseman arrive in the yard whose face she has no difficulty in recognizing as that of her lover. He tells her that he has come to marry her and persuades her to accompany him. He seats her behind him on the horse, and they gallop off furiously. On the world notices by the light of the moon that her lover is attired and laying out clothes. This discovery makes her shiver with fear, but as they pass a blacksmith, she finds the courage to shout out, Save me! The smith runs after the pair, overtakes them outside the cemetery, And the smith burns the dress of the girl with a pair of hot tongs onto which the dead man is holding tight, saving her. And the rider gallops off, jumping over the cemetery wall and disappearing into the tombs. Now, of course, the girl dies before dawn, but a piece of her dress is found on the tomb. Why does she have to die, too? It's terrible. Oh, she dies in the Suffolk Miracle sometimes, too. Why would be dying? tragic love story. Oh, okay. Now, most modern researchers feel like Child was wrong about this. I actually do see very different themes in Cold as Clay. I would say that while you do have the return of the dead lover, he becomes a more sinister object in the Cornwall story. You know, he's actively trying to take her with him to his grave, and he's fighting. Like, she wants to go. She is on to the story, and she wants to get off the horse before they ever get to the cemetery. Where yeah, the other right, one is yeah. about the dupe. It's about the, the, the twist. The other one's more of a love story. Mm-hmm. This is more of a scary story. Of course he thought it was the vulgar ghost story. Right, just all of the poetry just seeped out of it. Other researchers feel it might be tied to this French tale that's very, very similar from a little before that time. But some people really tie it even further back to a Greek ballad, The Return of the Dead Brother. Which is a catchy name. It's also called The Dead Brother's Song. Also catchy. So this is about a mother with nine sons and a daughter. Now the matchmaker comes from Babylon. So, oh, very long ago. Right, this is old. And takes the daughter Areti. Now Constantus is the only brother that approves, and he calls on heaven and the saints to witness that should Areti need to return from abroad, he himself would go to Babylon to fetch her. Now, as this is an old ballad... Everybody dies. All of them die. Everybody. All the brothers die. Mom's still alive. Because you need someone to mourn and repeat the chorus. Exactly. 
And so she's alone. She laments over the tomb of her son and curses him because he has not kept the promise that he made. So I'm guessing things are not going well for Areti wherever she is. Well, she's needed back because now the mother has no one to help take care of her. Ah, I see. So the mother's curses. Uh, naturally wake Constantus from his death sleep. Of course. Because so, this is a ballad. Things like that happen in Greek ballads in the ninth century. And so he rhymes the clowns to Babylon. The clouds, you say? Of course. Okay. To bring Areti back. So on his return, as they're riding through the sky on the clouds, talking birds comment on how odd it is to see this dead man riding with a beautiful girl. Judgmental birds. So he drops her off at the church and then vanishes before his sister's eyes. Does she know he's dead? She's suspicious. She asks him about it and he's like, I've been ill recently. And so mother and daughter are reunited and... Then they die. They die. They die. They promptly die. Everyone dies. So this can be traced all the way back to antiquity. It was composed in Asia Minor in the 9th century during the time of the Byzantine Empire. And it's the oldest surviving traditional Greek folk song. And it was very popular in the Greek-speaking world during the Middle Ages. And it has just survived so many centuries and has obviously inspired all of these other songs. Promises kept. That's a very powerful theme, I think. Oh, definitely. Second chances, all of those things. No wonder it survived. But it's embedded with some features of Greek myths as well, I would think. Oh, yeah, I can see that. So one example that comes to mind is Persephone. Ah, the beautiful daughter of Demeter. Yes. The goddess of spring. Persephone's out gathering flowers because she is the daughter of a goddess, and that's what you were supposed to do. And Hades, who we know is kind of cast as a villain in most stories, sees her gathering flowers and is like, I shall have one of those for myself, and by one of those, I mean her. And so he decides he's going to take her away to be the queen of the underworld. But no one knows where she's gone, so she's abducted by Hades, missing person, and so it goes. And Demeter is not pleased. Oh, no. So for a year, she's like, no more crops, no more food. That's important. No more surviving. And this is not going over well. There's a terrible famine. And Zeus looks down and is like, shit, I know what's up. And so he's like, Hades, you got to let her go, man. This is not working out for anyone. She's not happy. You're kind of happy, but are you ever really? No, just, just let her go. And Hades is like, okay, cool, but... Sneaky bastard. I'm going to be a sneaky bastard for one minute here and have you eat six pomegranate seeds for reasons. And she does, and that means that she is now cursed to return to the underworld for half the year. And when she is in the underworld, the earth does the whole famine thing, and when she comes out, there's spring and life, and things will grow, and that's why seasons. That's logical. Makes sense. Right. Because I can see how it ties in. There's ideas of a dead person returning a mournful mother. Mm-hmm. Who curses things and gets her way. And then you have the story of Aphrodite and Adonis. So Aphrodite and Persephone both fancy this young man named Adonis. And he's kind of a Adonis. Very handsome, most beautiful man in the whole world, apparently. And he's out hunting one day and he gets Baratheon. And Aww. he does. He gets gored by a boar and dies. 
And both Persephone and Aphrodite go to Zeus and they're like, we need a do-over. This is not going to work out for us. Can you please bring him back to life? And Zeus is like, fine, but you two have to stop fighting about this. So I'm going to cut the baby in half. No, he doesn't Solomon it. (laughs) Well, he, he does with his time, right? So he spends half the year with Persephone and half the year with Aphrodite. So when Persephone's doing the whole underworld bit, he goes to the underworld with her. And when he is not in the underworld, he can be above ground with Aphrodite. I'm going to let you guess which one of those was preferable to him. Yeah, because in some versions of the story, he has to spend a third of the time with Persephone, a third of the time with Aphrodite, and a third of the time of his choosing. And you're right. He always chooses Aphrodite. Yeah, wouldn't you? It's like, man, this place is kind of a bummer. That's right. This myth just has that archetypal motif of a dead or dying lover and their resurrection. It's very common in Greek and Roman mythology. And as we've already talked about, and you can see just thinking, it's very common in modern-ish folklore as well. But it's not always romantic love. So in one version of the tale... Adonis' mother was the beautiful Myra, and his father was King Cyrus of Cyprus, who was actually the father of Myra. So there was a little... Ain't it always the way? It's very edible. Well, the goddess Aphrodite made it happen because she was jealous of Wasn't Myra's beauty. Wasn't that kind beauty. of her job as a goddess to make that happen, the whole, like, parentage thing? Yeah, but not that way. Yeah, no. It was a perversion of duties. So, so when King Cyrus found out that he'd been tricked, he chased Myra with a sword, intending to kill both her and her unborn child. So Aphrodite, feeling kind of bad about what she did, quickly turned the girl in- into a tree. And nine months later, the baby pops out of the tree. Yes. Of course. Of course. Don't you wish that's how it worked? You turn into a tree for that time and then just like be done? Sure. I would rather be a tree than pregnant. So Aphrodite hid the newborn child Adonis in a chest, which she gave to Persephone to hide. Now Persephone opens the chest and is beheld by the most beautiful child, and she refuses to give it back to Aphrodite. Even though she goes back to the underworld to try to ransom the baby back. So eventually Zeus has to step in in this version as well, and decrees that Adonis should abide with Persephone in the underworld for one part of the year, and with Aphrodite in the upper world for the other part. When he stays in the underworld, it's winter, and when he returns, the earth blossoms into spring and summer. So that really is splitting the baby. So while these strong motifs are present in Greek mythology, there actually is probably another tie, a historical tie. Facts, you say? Well... Were they Catholic facts? They're Catholic facts. Yeah, well, okay. they become... Greek Orthodox facts, but at the time, they're Catholic facts. Okay. So I feel like we're about to talk about some martyrs. Of course, some saints. Okay. So during the time of the Roman emperor, Diocletian, who reigned from 245 to 315, there were three saints, Gereus, Simonus, and Abibos. Abibos is way too much fun to say. Well, they were martyred. That's less fun to say. In all sorts of gruesome ways. But miracles were brought by them when they were entreated for help with faith and love. Now, once, according to history, legends, sure. Mm -hmm. Hard facts. Yeah. There was a certain Gothic soldier who was sent to serve at Edessa, 
and took the pious virgin Euphemia as his wife. Now, they were very worried about this gothic soldier, this barbarian, taking their beautiful pious virgin daughter. I'd be worried too. So Euphemia's mother had the gothic soldier vow on the graves of the martyrs Grieris, Simonis, and Abibus that he would do his spouse no harm and would never insult her, would always love and cherish her. Or else? Well, whenever he returns back to his native land, it turns out that he has deceived everyone, for he already has a wife at home. No! And Euphemia becomes his slave. (gasps) Now her evil husband threatened to kill her if she revealed to anyone that they were married, and Euphemia suffered much abuse and humiliation. It was so bad that when she gave birth to a son, the gothic woman, wife, poisoned him. Oh no, that's mistreatment. That qualifies. That qualifies as mistreatment. Now, does anyone else, when you say gothic soldier and gothic wife, think they look like Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter? Oh, I'm pretty sure that's how they look. Okay. With beards. With both of them? Yes. So Euphemia turns to prayer to the holy martyrs, Gerus, Simonas, and Habibus, the witness to this perjurer's oath. And magic? Magic. The Lord delivers Euphemia from her suffering, miraculously returns her to Edessa, where she is welcomed by her mother. And then they die. No death in this okay, one. Fine. Sorry. Except the baby. baby. Poisoning a baby counts as mistreatment. In case anyone's worried, if you've sworn an oath anywhere and you're trying to consider, hey, if I do this, will it count? Will I get in trouble? Yes. Yes, you will. So while this may be the very, very long source of the Suffolk miracle, child actually decided to include it because he thought it was related to another great European poem. And when he says great, he means he approves of this one. Of course. This one meets with his approval. It's literary. It's important. Yes. All right. So get your intellectual hats on and let's look at this one. Ah, but he says that he was going to dismiss it as the vulgar prodigies printed for hawkers to sell and for Mopsa and Dorcas to buy, but it included it because it provided an English counterpart to one of the most impressive and beautiful ballads of the European continent. Well. So this poem actually is fantastic. And it's better when you read it aloud. And it goes by many names, one being Lenore, and it's by Gottfried August Berger. And he was a German I was going to say, he sounds distinctly not British. Right, and it was written down in 1773, and this was a response, and we've talked about this, to that call, the German people, to preserve that Volk tradition. Yes, that proud Volk tradition written down by the elites. (laughs) Thanks, elites. So this poem goes, that Lenore is at home waiting for her fiancé William to return from the Seven Year War. And she has not heard from him. Now all the other soldiers in King Frederick's army have returned. And she runs up and down the line and cannot find her sweet, sweet love. And she begins to fight with God, cursing him, saying that he has done no good for her. Oh, that's going to go well. And her mother tries to stop her. Her mother intervenes and is like, you can't say those things about God. And she says, Mother, no sacrament can heal the bitter sorrow that I feel. No sacrament can gain the dead to life again. God has no mercy, none. All that I prize is gone. So at midnight, a mysterious stranger who looks like William knocks on the door, asking for Lenore. 
He asked for her to come with him and ride to their marriage bed. And she's like, I have nothing better to do. My sweet, sweet William is dead and you kind of look like him, so I'm game. She doesn't know he's dead. He just hasn't come back. Oh, right. So she thinks it is William. He's come. Oh, good. And so she hikes up her skirt, jumps on the back of the horse, and under the moonlight they ride at breakneck speeds to this very eerily described countryside going through towns, passing a funeral train. And he says, Do you fear, my dear, the moon shines bright? Hurrah, the dead ride fast by night. Does fear the dead, not thou? No, but name them gently now. The kind of repeats verse is like, And horse and rider blew, and sparks and splinters flew. So at sunrise, they reach their destination. Our race is run, our work is sped, and here we find our wedding bed. The dead ride fast by night. We have reached the place all right. They've re- arrived at a cemetery. So she's not catching on when, she, when he's like, the dead ride fast by night. He's not, she's not picking up on that reference. That she like, thinks he's talking about the funeral train. Okay, this is very clever. Well done, well done, it Burger. Is. It really is. So with his whip, he opens the gate. And as they're riding through the cemetery past the gravestones, he begins to lose his human appearance. Ho, oh, see him in an instant straight, a hard sight display. His harness molders plate by plate, like tender rags weigh. Before behind his locks are gone, his head a skull of naked bone. A skeleton in every limb, he glares with scythe and hourglass grim. He's death. Behold, a pale rider. Yes, death personified. And he's come to take her away because she cursed God. Their marriage bed is the grave. No. A howling came upon the gale, and from below a dismal wail, Lenore with heart and breath, gasp between light and death. And now beneath the moon's pale glance, carriage round and round, the specters wove their grisly dance and howled their dismal sound. So the ground beneath Lenore's feet begins to crumble and the spirits are dancing in the moonlight surrounding her as she's dying. And now, of course, it ends with blame not thy God, nor with him chide. Your quarrel is not with God, it's with death. That's what that point is. And it's also giving you moral, which is so handy for any kind of oral tradition. Right. You can get by with saying some really vulgar stuff if you get that moral across at the end. Exactly. It's like, oh, this was terrible. But it's because you said that thing about God. I think this is the earliest form of victim blaming. Oh, that goes much further you're back. Right, you're right, you're right, you're <laughs> right. So the name Lenore, right? Yes. So that's uh, like, you know, in, in Nevermore. Eleanor. The Raven. So the poem Lenore had this massive influence. And it's kind of the beginnings of the gothic horror story. I can see that. Like, I can see, you know Poe read this. You know Poe had it on his bedside table and pulled it out when he was feeling a little too happy, just to balance himself out. Oh, and without a doubt, Bram Stoker and Charles Dickens did, because they make reference to that the dead traveling fast by night in uh, both yeah. of their stories, Dracula I and A Christmas Carol. I can definitely see some Dracula here. I can see the influence reflected in, like, the charming death that lover dracula and so these motifs are so strong i mean you can see they date all the way back and have continued on and this versions of the suffolk miracle cold as clay the holland handkerchief are still being collected today told orally throughout north america and europe 
child. Never to let sentiment stand alone. Never to just say these are compelling to people for reasons. He observed that the dead must always have a reason in stories and popular ballads for walking around and even more for riding horses. Reasons such as the wish of the dead for relief from an extensive lament of the living, the fulfillment of some promise, or the announcement of a death. Right. And that is another really strong component of all these stories, is the dead come back for some reason. They can't just stop by and be like, what's up? You're awesome. Well, they can. (laughs) They don't. (laughs) They never do. So this idea of the dead coming back for a reason, I think that that may be more of the root of this than all of the stories we've seen. Like I think that that is enough without the thematic structure to say it's just the idea that the dead come back for a purpose. Well, I think without a doubt, it's a motif that strings the stories together. Mm-hmm. They may not be related because of that, but that idea... That idea of the dead coming back to tell us something is a very ancient one. And you have to wonder why it's so pervasive. I mean, you can look back to Greeks and Romans talking about this. And we're going to stick with kind of Western culture on this episode because we know that there's a lot of really interesting traditions. Especially in China. Oh my gosh, some of those traditions are amazing. But for our purposes, we're going to take from child sources and we're going to kind of look at this burger layout and work within that framework and so you can look back to the greeks and romans and cicero 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 means chickpea that's your factoid of the day it is my factoid of the day and i have another one yes it was a nickname that was given to him because he had a mole that looked like a chickpea on his nose so now Whenever you read anything by Cicero, all you're going to think about is that chickpea nose. So chickpea did write books called On Divination. And he told about this dream. Two friends from Arcadia who were taking a journey together came to Megara. And one traveler put up at the inn and the second went to the home of a friend. After they had eaten supper and retired, the second traveler in the dead of night dreamed that his companion was imploring him to come to his aid as the innkeeper was planning to kill him. He was greatly frightened at first by the dream. He arose and later, regaining his composure, decided that there was nothing to worry about and went back to bed. Now, when he had gone to sleep, the same person appeared to him and said, since you would not help me when I was alive, I beg that you will not allow my dead body to remain unburied. I have been killed by the innkeeper who has thrown my body into a cart and covered it with dung. I pray you to be at the city gate in the morning before the cart leaves the town. Now, he was thoroughly convinced by the second dream and he met the cart driver at the gate in the morning. And when he asked what he had in the cart, the driver fled in terror. (laughs) The Arcadian then removed his friend's dead body from the cart, made complaint of the crime to the authorities, and the innkeeper was punished. Cicero says... What stronger proof of a divinely inspired dream than this can be given? Well, assuming everything you've said is true and caught on film, none. (laughs) I don't think there was film. (laughs) Exactly. So the idea of the dead coming to let us know that they're dead has been around in anecdotes and fables and songs and lore since Chickpea's Dung Heap. Is that what we're calling that? That's what we're going to call that. It's chickpeas nunky. I like on divination better. Okay, fine. So, time immemorial. It was only a matter of time, one would note and one would assume, 
before someone tried to quantify, analyze, and study the phenomena of the dead coming to let us know that they're dead or reaching out to us at the moment of death. Oh, can I guess? I bet you're going to be right. Is it William James? Very close. It is William James adjacent. Oh, okay. But it is the Society for Psychical Research. Ah, so our favorite Victorians. Favoritist. Who liked to myth bust. Basically. Some of these like mediums and other spiritualist ideas. They were trying to get down to the root of it. Right, but importantly, they did believe that something extra normal existed. They had the idea that it was possible. But they wanted to quantify it, study it, write about it, etc. And they wanted to get rid of all false claims. Now, the man at the helm of this particular branch of research within the Society for Psychical Research is Edmund Gurney. And he is quite the dandy. So is this where the term Gurney comes from? Because he was dealing with the dead? Yes. No. (laughs) It is now. I like it. I'm keeping it. So in Deborah Bloom's book, Ghost Hunters, which is amazing, and I know I've mentioned it like three times, but if you haven't read it by now, you should really pause, go read it. She says that Gurney possessed the outward appearance of a man lavishly blessed by life. He stood nearly six feet, four inches tall, blue-eyed and fair-haired. He had an elegantly chiseled face adorned by high cheekbones and a drooping handlebar mustache. He wore his top hats high and his tailored suits with style. And George Eliot said that he possessed a mind as beautiful as his face. Sounds like someone has little crush. She did. I meant George Eliot. Bloom says he could seem almost annoyingly perfect until one got to know him better and found shadows under his gloss. Another researcher, Myers, noted that he could not bear to live without hard work. And many talked about his mercurial temperament and how paralyzing bouts of depression had interrupted his university studies. And today he might have been diagnosed with some sort of mental illness, um, cyclical depression, bipolar, bipolar manic episodes where he wrote like a crazy person yeah. and worked feverishly and then could became like immovable. At this time, he was simply characterized as a man given to extremes. He had been a passionate musician and musical theorist. His book on sound is still widely read by music theorist. Um, he'd also been a philosopher for a while and studied psychology, spent some time in medical school, but didn't like it, and then went to law school, but then got distracted. And he had inherited a large sum of money and he was pretty so he could afford to be distracted and he was distracted by this idea of psychical research and so he became the world's very first full-time paranormal researcher because before reality tv there was no other really no way to do it unless you were rich and pretty right there was no other way to support yourself (laughs) while you did it Sometimes Myers, the fellow who said he could not bear to live without hard work, worried that he'd bullied his gentler friend into joining his improbable crusade. But in that he had been mistaken. Gurney had awakened to the cause. And he really kind of came over to the side of like, maybe there's something there after all three of his younger sisters died in a boating accident on the Nile. Curse of the Pharaohs. Absolutely. Let's tack it on. But he began to have a very close and warm working relationship and very significant friendship with William James. William James is the father of American psychology. One might say he kind of legitimized the field, wrote a few very influential books. I think you've had to read some of 
the James writings about psychology just to be a doctor or a person. Well, his theories especially. Yes. And to William James, Gurney wrote, The mystery of the universe and the indefensibility of human suffering was often on his mind. So he was very intrigued by the idea of why sorrow was inflicted on people and why we experienced it, why we had to feel sad. So he was like looking at that age old question of why does God make us suffer in religion? But he was also looking at this moment of Darwinian crisis, because you have to remember that's happening, this big standoff between science and religion. And if he's like, if it's not just a cruel God, why are we biologically programmed to understand sad? Which now you're thinking about. I (laughs) I can see you. I am. You're making me think. (laughs) It's a good question. James said that they were two lost souls, and maybe we are, but that remains to be seen. Now. We're going to leave the beautiful, elegant, musical, philosophical dandy dandy, and hop across the pond to America. Wait, this is where William James is. Right. That's also where Samuel Clemens is. Mark the Twain. That's the one. Now, he's always inspiring, and he doesn't fail us here. This story was well known inside the Society for Psychical Research because Twain was a member of the Society for Psychical Research and had shared this with the group. And the story is this. In 1858, Sam and his brother Henry were training as riverboat captains, and they were working on the Mississippi on a paddle wheeler called the Pennsylvania in June. And they docked in St. Louis, and Henry and Sam went to visit their sister Pamela, who lived nearby. Henry then returned to the ship, but Sam decided to stay the night with Pamela. As Sam was falling asleep, he had this vision of Henry lying in a metal casket, balanced between two chairs. That'll scare you. Mm-hmm. And he had a bouquet of flowers resting on his chest, white roses with a single red rose in the center. And he woke up and felt very jarred by what he'd seen and went downstairs and like half expected to find the casket downstairs because it had just been so vivid. And he thought like maybe he'd slept through it. You know, that weird half awake. Thing. Yeah. When you like kind of like, was it a dream? Mm-hmm. And so the next morning, so he did realize it was a dream when there was no casket in the living room. And so he told his sister, Pamela, about it the next morning. And she says, well, that dream couldn't possibly come true. Only wealthy people can afford metal coffins. And he was like, "Is that a thing? Yes. Really? I mean, think about all the bells and whistles they used to put on coffins. They still do. No, but I mean, you mean like, literal bells and whistles. Yes. <laughs> um, so he feels relieved when she points this out. Cause you know, when you're worried about something and someone can poke a hole in it, right? If you, somebody can say, no, it can't be true because blah, I just saw your father or no, no, they're not boating today or whatever it is, whatever little thing you can find to hold on to, to allay your worries. And so he feels better, and he goes back to the Pennsylvanians, sees Henry, and he's alive, which is good. Sigh of relief. But they actually were separated because they were originally going to head out together on the Pennsylvania, but that plan changed unexpectedly because there was another ship, boat, that was lagging a little behind, and they wanted Sam to stay and work on that boat, and Henry was to go ahead with the Pennsylvania. So they were separated, put on different boats. Mm Mm-hmm. And... A few days later, the boiler on the Pennsylvania exploded. Was it the Spanish? It was. It was just south of Memphis. And when news reached Sam, he left his boat and hired a fast horse and rode to Memphis. Of course he did. Yes, because he is basically a tall tale. But he found his brother in a local hospital and was at his bedside when he died that night. And they asked him to leave the room so they could prepare the body. And he went back into the room a little later and found his brother 
lying in a metal casket. Where did they get a metal casket? He wondered the same thing. And the casket was also balanced across two chairs. And he was like, well, it's almost right, but he doesn't have the flowers. And so a woman walks up and she's dressed in black. And she says that she's one of the nurses and that they had all been very fond of Henry. And they'd all chipped in to buy him a coffin. And then she lays down a bouquet of flowers, all white roses, except one red one in the center. And she puts it right on his chest. Oh, no. Well, I mean, everyone knows that Mark Twain was magic. He was. Or an alien. Both. Everyone knows he came on Haley's Comet and left on Haley's Comet, which is actually an alien spaceship. Mind blown. His birthday coincided with Haley's Comet. And then 76 years later... So did his death. Yes, it's all very fascinating. When I was in fourth grade, we were told we could write research papers about anything. And one kid in my class wrote a paper on baseball, and one of my best friends did one on pandas. And I chose to write about Mark Twain, and we had to have a visual aid of some kind. And so I wrote his name in cursive and cut it out and like made a little ball at the end. and like It was like a comet, and then I put a picture of him in it. It was really cool. It was I very bet exciting. it was. Only one who did a person. Yeah. Pandas. (laughs) So this caused... Wait, hold on. We're going back across the pond. Come with me now. Back to England. Okay, we're all there? Good. I know, the food is terrible. We'll make it. Have some tea. But this caused Gurney, the story caused Gurney to consider what he called the ordinary occult. So is that like odd things that happen in the everyday? Right. People who experience paranormal activity who are not seeking it out at seances who are not trying to hone their mediumistic abilities or using Ouija boards or whatever. So Gurney and Myers decided that they wanted to compile this cumulative report that would take into account reports like Twain's and provide a data set that revealed... Something? Yes. That's not how you're supposed to science. (laughs) He's a pianist, okay? What'd you call him? You heard me. William James pointed out, no matter where you open... The pages of history, you find things recorded under the name of divinations, inspirations, demonological possessions, apparitions, trances, ecstasies, miraculous healings, and products of disease. Sure. I'm sure if you look at all of that, you'll find something. something. <laughs> I like it. Let's go. <laughs> so they're off to science. Let's science. Let's collect some look, things. We barely have the scientific method. Come oh, on. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true at all. Sorry. Facts. Facts. So the Society for Psychical Research started running newspaper ads asking people to send them stories of stuff. Do you have a ghosty story? Feel free to tell us about it. Call the Urban Legend Hotline. Oh my God, they're... They are opening the Urban Legend Hotline. But when they got these stories, they'd be like, okay, well, we're going to need to do some research. Oh, God. So seeming familiar to you? What's yes. the matter? And they would ask for, you know, confirmation or other witnesses or supporting documents. So did people actually write in? Yes. Uh, over the first two months of this process, Gurney wrote, more than 1,600 responses. And that's throwing out the ones that are like, my cat licked my face after it died. You know, like the ones he didn't want to research further. And he wrote to James, one lives in a world of sporadic interest and a small excitement whether A will answer this question satisfactorily and B that whether C's mother really died on the night that she saw her appear at a distance or a night or two earlier so that she might have heard the news in between. 
And he was driving himself a little crazy. You can see how many moving parts there are to each one of these stories. And he's kind of juggling like a thousand of them. And so he writes, I find it difficult, almost impossible very often to sit down and read anything and feel as if I were not improving, but rather the reverse. It is a bore that there are not more hours in the day and more energy in one's gray matter between waking and sleeping. What's going to happen when his manic episode ends? We'll get there. And then he also told James, I wish you were not severed by the intractable Atlantic. And James assured Gurney that it was as worthy a specialty as a man could take up. But Gurney did care about the things that were being said about psychical research. It bothered him very much that there was a perpetual association in the eyes of the world with intellectual whoredom. What? I want that tattooed on my ass. Intellectual whoredom. We are intellectual whoredom. Yes, we are. Shirt, 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 shirt. He was frustrated with outsiders assuming that they liked this shit. He was like, I have to go through all of this in order to find anything that might possibly be true. I don't actually like the story of the dead cat licking the woman. He said, our plan has been to spread the nets very wide and get a big haul and then viciously sift. Perhaps 5% of all the cases heard of bona fide prove worth something, but we should never have gotten the 5% if we had not laid ourselves open to the 95. While I'm curious about the 95%, let's hear some of the stories he thought were bona fide, true. <laughs> bona fide. So this is one of his favorites. It was around the mid-1870s in England, as will become apparent in three seconds. There was a squire. They still had squires Apparently. then? Apparently. And he had a neighbor who was a young man who owned a farm. And they would occasionally hunt together, or have an occasional drink, but they didn't have a very close friendship. But one chilly evening in March of 1876, the squire met his neighbor walking across the corner of his estate, and they talked for a moment. But as they parted company, the younger man, the farmer, or the landowner, invited the squire to come over and smoke a cigar. That was very unusual. But the squire had to decline because he had a dinner engagement. And the young man seemed very anxious about leaving. He kept saying goodbye and repeating the invitation. And it it struck this fellow as odd, but he did already have plans and he was not going to break them. But about 10 that night, he returned home and went to his library to retrieve a book on the natural history of birds. Because what else do you do after you go to dinner? Then he dozed off in his armchair near a window. And then he heard the gate open and shut and hurried footsteps approaching the house. He could hear the visitor's labored breathing, and then he heard a scream, ah! followed by sobs. Worst <laughs> 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 sound effects ever. I'll try. Of my fright and horror, I can say nothing. It increased tenfold when I walked into the dining room and found my wife sitting quietly at her work close to a window. She had heard nothing. Seeing his face, she asked what was wrong. He said, only someone outside. She said, why not go out and look, as you always do when there's a strange noise? He says, there's something dreadful about that noise. Which is a fucking ominous line. Something dreadful. (laughs) About that noise. So the next morning, he went out to look for footprints in the snow and didn't find it. Hey, that's another urban legend. Yes, it is. But there were no footprints in his snow. And a few hours later, a friend came to tell him that the neighbor had committed suicide by drinking a glass of prussic acid, which is distilled from a dye called Prussian blue. 
when it's a cyanide Cyanide. Yes. So the coroner believed that he had taken the poison sometime around 10 the previous night. When he was reading about birds, you say? Yes, yes, I do say. So Gurney received this letter from the squire who wanted to be sure that he knew that he wasn't a sensitive man always hearing things and flinching at shadows. No, really, I'm tough. I'm not as scared. So Gurney checked out a story and he compiled statements from the man's wife, other neighbors, the chemist who'd sold the poison. He verified the claims about the weather by looking at newspapers from the time. And after all that checked out, he put it in the 5% pile. But that's one story out of thousands. And think of how long that took to do without the internet. Letters and letters and letters. So what did he do once he had all these stories? Well, he, he was working on a book with Myers, which would catalog the evidence that you know, lived in the 5%. And they recruited a man named Frank Podmore to help. But Frank Podmore and Myers did not get along. And they basically just bickered the entire time they were working on this project. And Gurney then had to moderate that. So that stress is going on. And then there's also the question of authorship. Myers and Gurney were originally going to share equal billing. But Gurney had greater simplicity and clarity in his writing so he wasn't some flowery writer no 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 and the impressed the scientific arm of spr so he had cred he seemed to have a little bit more credibility i think also his relationship with james may have played into this decision so he became the sole author of phantasms of the living Ooh, that sounds like a good movie and that line there's something dreadful about that noise is definitely in it that's the tag yes <laughs> There's the end. It's like, phantasms of the living. There's something dreadful about that noise. Ba-ba! I'd see it. You'll see it? Let's go see it. Let's go. So he was married to a woman named Kate, who is a pretty socialite. And during the compilation of this greatest hits of the spiritual realm, known as phantasms of the living, they became a bit estranged. Bloom writes... Gurney was so lost in his search, so consumed by his determination to make others see what lay before him, that he had almost forgotten his pretty wife and his sweet young daughter. Kate Gurney cared nothing for metaphysical debates and theological questions in which her husband had buried himself alive. She liked parties, gossip, and lively conversation. Edmund had seemed so much fun when she married him, and now he'd become so very serious and really a bore. Ah, that vapid woman. Vapid woman. Can't understand the ghosties. Today, if you were obsessed with ghosties, I bet you'd get called vapid. Exactly. So, in addition to his, like, being preoccupied with this, it also became, like, a literal presence in their home. His notes were everywhere. All of these papers. And it didn't stay in a study. It was piles and piles and piles of documents. Oliver Lodge, another researcher, was alarmed by the state of Gertie's home and wondered if it was worth all the trouble that he was going to. He said, Attention to such gruesome tales seemed to me a futile occupation for a cultivated man. Yes, I mean, this guy's definitely got some psychological problems. I mean, he's probably bipolar, I would say. I'm thinking that's probably true. But look at this evidence he's getting, Jacob. How could you not be obsessed? Do you have another good story? I have another one. One more. Or five. (laughs) At least. So there was a British nobleman traveling with friends in Sweden. And the party decided to go to Norway because why not? And they decided to stop at a coach inn during the night because it was late and cold and they were weary. Around 1 a.m. on an icy night, 
They finally got in their rooms, and our British nobleman decided he needed a hot bath. Quoth the Brit, While lying in it and enjoying the comfort of the heat, after the late freezing I had undergone, I turned my head around, looking toward the chair on which I deposited my clothes, as I was about to get out of the bath. Now, sitting on the chair, with the clothes, was a man that he'd known well. Is he watching him bathe? Apparently. They'd been university friends. Definitely. Yep. Frat brothers. Yep. But his friend had gone to work in India for the civil service several years ago, and they'd not spoken in years. And so seeing him leering from the chair where he'd deposited his clothes before his warm bath kind of freaked the dude out. And he fell and hit his head on the bathroom floor. But when he pulled himself up, his friend was gone. And he told no one about it, but wrote about it in his diary. And he dated the entry December 19th, 1799. He later received a letter upon returning back to England, which told him of his friend's death. And it was also dated December 19th, 1799. Proof. Real, tangible proof. You're right. You're right. Now, this one I like. There's a merchant who is taking a night off during his trip from England to Toronto. And he decided to go to the theater with a Canadian businessman. And they were looking down from their box... And the man saw this flicker and then saw someone looking up at him. And he realized it was his twin brother. Or a doppelganger. No, it's definitely his twin brother. That's another episode. Yeah. But his brother was in China at the time. I instantly exclaimed to my friend, Good God, there is my brother! I cannot see anyone looking up here, eh? Said his friend. But the Englishman was so excited that he ran down to the orchestra pit, calling for his brother. But there was no one standing in the spot. And no one resembling his brother in the crowd. I am not superstitious nor spiritualist, but could not get over the startling circumstances for some time, he said. When he returned to England, he learned that his brother had died at a French hospital in Shanghai on October 6, 1867. This was the night that the merchant had gone to the theater in Canada. So he's gathering stories that kind of have a little bit of evidence, as much evidence as you can get with this. We have other people witnessing it. You've probably got a theater ticket stub that has the date. You know what date he was in the hospital, just like with the letter and the entry in the diary. There's like proof, as much proof as you can get. Yes, definitely. And I'm going to read you one more because it's really creepy. This one creeps me out. Ooh. Ooh. There was a woman sitting in her mother's bedroom when her seven-year-old nephew came into her room unexpectedly. No, no, not kids, not creepy kids. He was out of breath. And he said, Oh, Auntie, I've just seen my father walking around my bed. And she said, Nonsense, you must be dreaming. Your father is traveling in another country for business. But the child would not be quieted. He would not go back to his bed. And he wanted to get in bed with her. So she allowed him. And about an hour later, she turned over and saw her brother sitting by the fireplace. Okay, that's, this is very creepy. <laughs> yes, I agree. What particularly struck me was the pallor of his face. I was so frightened knowing my brother was in Hong Kong. Everyone's in China. That I put <laughs> my head under my bedclothes. And then he called my name three times. No, I don't know. This is creepy. <laughs> and then faded. So I told my mother the next morning. And she told me to make a note of it. I did. And I wrote down 10 p.m. August 21st, 1869. The next time we got mail from China, there was a letter saying that my brother had died of heat stroke on August 21st, 1869. More proof. So I'm sure Granny was just over the moon 
excited about all of this research that he was doing. He was gathering stories that had, like I said, as much proof as you can get with this. Well, he especially was, at the time. I mean, he was frantic. He was frantically working, manic, manically working. Maybe that's a better term. Through all of this, he had about 700 that he thought were credible and he wanted to keep his hand on them. And he began to notice that the apparitions seemed to appear at the moment of death or extreme injury. There seemed to be this very unique clustering around that in all of the stories he was getting. However, he knew that not all of these stories were compelling narratives. He wrote that these stories were far more likely to provoke sleep in the course of perusal than banish it afterwards. But he thought they were hard to explain, and that made them interesting. The effect on the mind of a sudden large accumulation of direct, well-attested, and harmonious detail is impressive. And he was beginning to develop a theory. And this was aided by some naysayer who poo-poos every party. Everyone has one of these when you're telling your great ghost story or this weird thing that happened to you. And they're like, well, clearly saw the light on the phone before you heard it ring and they knew it was going to ring and they're not really psychic. You know that guy. You know. Me? Yeah. Yeah, I know me. So he was dealing with a you named Nora. I love ghost stories. Yeah, but you will spoil them. Sorry. It's awful. And Nora, who is uh, the wife of the president of Society for Psychical Research, as well as a mathematician and a researcher of haunted houses who didn't believe in ghosts, love her. Love her. She can go in our pantheon. <laughs> she can. She wholeheartedly objected to the idea that ghosts would wear clothes. All right, that's not a crazy idea. It's not that crazy. Because if you're saying they're actually spirits. Like they're in the room with you. Like there. Why do they have clothes? Where do the clothes come from? Do they have to get dressed or are they just like part of them? This Is, a is there J.C. Penney's in heaven in the afterlife? <laughs> Like, is everyone have to wear JCPenney's clothes Moo-moos. in the Moo-moos Summerland? Summerland pennies. There's a 20% off sale today. We're cutting prices. I don't have any ghost money. See, then you have to introduce the idea of ghost economy. I have some chickpeas. <laughs> and a dung heap. So, Nora was always complaining about ghost clothes. But Gurney had heard this story in his collection of all of the... 100% from which we get 5% about this lady who had gone out for a drive and spotted a friend who she thought was vacationing at the seashore walking down the road wearing her favorite seal skin coat. Where'd you get the seal skin coat? Are there seal ghosts? <laughs> if there are seal ghosts and I can play with them, take me now. Like there must be pinnipeds in heaven <laughs> or I'm not going. But yes, this woman had a seal skin coat because she was a terrible person, and that made sense. But what didn't make sense is that it was the middle of the summer, and that was a rather, you know, warm coat because seals need them to be alive in the cold places in which they live. And so she thought it was odd, and then she tried to speak to the woman, and the woman wouldn't speak to her. And it really just kind of bugged her. And she asked the butler when she got home if the woman had been by to call on her. She just had this feeling that she had something she needed to say. He said no. And so then she called her sister and was like, did she call you? And she's like, no. And she's like, that bitch. And then a few days later, she found out that her friend had died while she was vacationing at the seashore around the same time that she had seen her walking down the road in her seal skin coat. Now, it's not that great of a story. No. Sorry. But let's go back to our idea. Where's the naked ghost? (laughs) The people want to know. But it did spark something in Gurney's mind. The naked ghost did? And I'm sure it often did. 
but not in this story. So the seal skin coat, that out of place detail that didn't make sense, made him think that maybe the woman wasn't seeing anything literal. That perhaps this was all part of some projection. Projection by who? By the woman who was witnessing the seal skin coat lady. So she in some way like feels that woman's energy is reminded of it some kind of cue on a subconscious level and she's forced to use her mind's eye her memories but she's getting the energy from the dying person from the lady with seal seal skin coat and she is interpreting that through her memories yes like you would in a dream interesting idea well this was a new idea i mean freud had just started writing about the subconscious freud Freud, Freud, Freud. We sound like the birds from Finding Nemo. Freud, 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 Freud. So upon like receiving that friend's energy, this telepathic contact is what he kind of was theorizing that it might be. Upon being in the presence of that energy, she fills in the details with familiar touches with the most associated picture, your mental image. I feel like that's a really astute observation. A good idea. I like it. I think his mind is as beautiful as his face. And Google him. It's lovely. He's no Samuel Clemens. Lord of mercy. He looks like Hugh Jackman. He does. He looks like a phase of Wolverine. I want that movie. I want that fucking movie. Well, I spend years as a steamboat Steam captain. captain. <laughs> Steamboating's what I do best. <laughs> so Gurney decided he needed something, like statistics... To prove that there was some trend, clustering, meaning to all of this. He wanted to show that the way in which apparitions were perceived was consistent beyond a chance rate. If this Good could, luck with that. If this could be done, these visits could not be written off as coincidence. So Gurney also described these crisis apparitions as hallucinations of the sane, since they're mostly like one-time events. These are not repeat occurrences. These are not people who are mediums or claiming you know going to seances etc i love that term hallucinations of the sane this man could turn a phrase so he proposed what he called a census of hallucinations which i think is another great phrase and he was trying to get the spr to take this on as a larger project but on his own again we're dealing with manic gurney at this moment he had sent out a mailer and he'd received 5705 responses to his single question. So what was the question? question was, have you, since January 1st of 1874, 12 years earlier, have you, while in good health, free from anxiety, and completely awake, had a vivid impression of seeing or being touched by a human being, or hearing the voice or sound which suggested a human presence, when there was no one there? Yes or no? Okay, so he's making an interesting point in this question, because a lot of these stories are when people are sleeping. Mm-hmm. So of the 5,705 responses that he received, 23 had had a visual hallucination. So taking the number of deaths in Britain for the last 12 years, he calculated the odds of random chance of this happening as a trillion to one. That's not how statistics Math work. facts. No, sorry. I'm an idea man, okay? You need to get naked ghost lady to come help you with your math. <laughs> <laughs> Nora Sidgwick, naked ghost lady, romance novel, it's happening. <laughs> yes. But it seemed to him to be a significant preliminary finding. 
though he expected to follow up with a much more sound and wider-reaching census. He included 702 incidents of crisis apparitions. Crisis apparitions are when, like, at the moment of death, around the moment of death, or in a moment of serious crisis, we get an apparition of some sort. So he used 702 cases in his book, Phantasms of the Living. And of these, 401 were clustered right at the moment of death. Some of them, you know, a couple of days later, some of them are a little time before. And he also observed 25 cases that occurred near the end of a fatal illness. Okay. So he has math and statistics Mm -hmm. that he thinks support his case. What does he draw from all of this, from all of this massive amount of hard work? In his analysis of veridical hallucinations, which he classified as vivid visual auditory and tactile impressions that convey specific information not accessible through the known channels of perception. He aimed to conduct an evaluation of anecdotal reports of apparitions of persons in life-threatening, fatal or otherwise emotionally significant situations to relatives and loved ones who were not there at the time of crisis. If such things existed and could be verified, they might be understood as the recipient's idiosyncratically dramatized expressions of telepathic impressions received just below the threshold of conscious awareness. Oh, so a lot of the Society for Psychical Research researchers thought that the most likely thing with all of these mediums and a lot of these things was telepathy. Mm-hmm. That was the answer. Mm-hmm. And so this is one more thing they could say. Telepathy. Is the cause. Well, he did a lot of research on telepathy, which is also included in Phantasms of the Living. And he would try to do thought transference experiments and... I see you're showing me the drawings. Yes. So he would have one person sit in one room and one person sit in another room. And he'd tell one draw a horse and then that would be the sender. And the sender would try to send it to the receiver who had received no verbal instruction and was asked to duplicate the picture that the other was drawing. I drew a naked ghost... Of course you did. Of course you did, Nora. Of course you did. Shame on you. But he did. He believed that this had to do more with telepathy. And so he puts forward this theory of the like telepathic ghost projection in Phantasms of the Living, which is a towering work. And he publishes it in 1886. William James gives it a glowing review in Science on January 7th of 1877. He says... This is a most extraordinary work, and he praised the author's untiring zeal in collecting facts and says that the book embodies a learning of the solidest sort. But Gurney feared that the book was going to be overlooked or underestimated, and it really was. So some newspaper journalists reviewed it kind of as this curiosity, novelty item. Luther's trying to make science out of ghosts. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? But the research community just kind of missed this memo that this was supposed to be science. No, it's real science. And then Pierce, who is an impossible skeptic and critic, he was the person who unmasked the Davenport brothers. He was one of those Harvard researchers who was just really, really hard on anything remotely resembling a ghost. The Davenport brothers were one of the first big spiritualist mediums that were proven to be fraud. Yes, and that's the downfall begins. So he excoriated this work. But Gurney was like, meh, he has some points. And he conceded that people were likely to forget dreams that did not coincide with a death, and that caused an inflation of statistics. And he said that the statistical sample was far too small. 
Right. Because the stats are absolutely, like, completely invalid. There's not enough people, and you don't have a control group. Right. But James told Gurney, the next 25 years will then probably decide the question. Either a flood of confirmatory phenomena caught in the act will pour in in consequence of the work, or it will not pour in. And then we shall legitimately enough explain the stories as here preserved as mixtures of odd coincidences and fiction. And he is very kind of almost on the nose about that. Because over the next few years, you do see this growth in spiritualism. And you do see this huge increase in reports of visits like this. You know, we talked about on the like Ouija board episode about how there was just an increase in people trying to communicate with their lost loved ones during the world wars. But I don't think the scientific community went, okay. Oh, no. But, I mean, there definitely were reports pouring in. Absolutely. But this had a really devastating effect on Gurney because he'd poured his heart and soul into this book. He wrote James in 1888. Are you not nearly due on this side of the Atlantic? What a joy it will be to talk again. Such a number of new things to talk about. God bless you. And it was barely a month later that Gurney drove to Brighton on June 23rd of 1888, where he'd been investigating a haunted house. And he checked into the Royal Albion Hotel and dined in the hotel coffee room and then went to bed around 10. Now, around 2 p.m. on Sunday, he'd not come out of his room. And the maid had knocked on the door. And the hotel manager had knocked on the door. And then the police had knocked on the door. And then they'd broken down the door. And they found Gurney inside dead, lying on his bed on his side. He had a sponge bag, which was used to hold toiletries in his hand, covering his mouth and nostrils. And there was a tiny bottle with just a few drops of clear liquid on the floor beside the bed. He was only 41 years old. Wait, how did he die? Well, the inquest found that it was an accident because he was known to use chloroform to help him sleep. That's a bad idea. He had neuralgia in his face as well. Wow, that's terrible. It's like shooting pains in your face all the time. So he used it for that as well. That'll help that, for sure. So we'll laudan him. <laughs> Probably a little bit of that, too. So Sidrick, president of the Society for Psychical Research, said, Nora and I do not know what we will do without him. Nora of naked ghost fame. And James wrote, It seems one of death's stupidest strokes. I know of no one whose life task was begun on a more far-reaching scale, from whom one expected with greater certainty, richer fruit in the ripeness of time. To me, it will be a cruel loss, for he recognized me more than anyone, and in all my thoughts of returning to England, he was the Englishman from whom I awaited the most nourishing communion. Hey, apparently, he also had a little crush. (laughs) (laughs) I think he was just a very crushable man. But Alice, William James's sister, wrote in her diary, They say there is little doubt that Mr. Edmund Gurney committed suicide. And this rumor was pervasive. Now, despite the fact that this is proved to be an accident, supposedly by the Brighton Inquest, everyone is gossiping about all of the reasons he had to kill himself. And they talked about his mercurial temperament, his tendency to drive himself to exhaustion, the rampant criticism of the Society for Psychical Research, the recent exposure of many frauds, and his depression over the reception of his book. James had even expressed concern that he might be taking all this to heart a bit too much. Fury of this hunt after ghost and the like was positively wasting him. The very body of him, I mean. And there were also these whispers that his wife had sort of also abandoned him. That it was a mutual 
estrangement. And she did answer James's letter of condolence thusly. I have a strong certainty that he is happier and still achieving. And I feel that if I had not heard of the immortality of the soul, I should think he was going on. Which sounds lovely and is the kind of thing you would say to someone you know believes in an afterlife. But then as soon as the customary year of mourning has passed, Henry James, brother of William, author of Turn of the Screw. Henry James. That one, Golden Bowl. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. He spots her in Paris with her new husband. I thought you were going to say he was with her. That would be a power couple and some tawdry, tawdry soap fuel. But he writes to William James and says, How the drama of life rushes on, and how very out of it all our poor chloroformed Edmund Gurney seems. All right, so I think the most important question right now, in this point in the story, is Did anyone see his ghost or spirit or telepathic projection around the time of his death? We need answers. Okay, so he did not make a crisis apparition appearance. Boo. But Oliver Lodge, fellow researcher, did make contact with Edmund through a medium. Did he say the secret word? They didn't have one. (sighs) Everyone, find your buddy. Everyone, tell your buddy your secret word you're going to send through a medium if one of you dies first. Now, never tell anyone else. Now, you're like Houdini, which is awesome. He did not get the secret word. But he was studying Enora Piper, who William James believed might be a true medium. And he'd ask other investigators to look into her. And James wrote, If you wish to upset the law that all crows are black, it is enough if you prove that only one crow is white. My white crow is Mrs. Piper. So he thought she was the real deal. He did, but he did not believe she was a spiritualist medium. He believed she might be telepathic. Telepathic. Yeah. Yeah, that's the answer. Taking everything that I know of Mrs. Piper into account, the result is to make me feel absolutely certain, as I am of any personal fact in the world, that she knows things in her trances which she could not possibly have heard in her waking state. There's a definite physiology of her trances is yet to be found. So, in investigating Lenora... Leonora. Lodge receives the following message. Edmund sends his love. And then he begins, she begins speaking in a different voice and says, I'm here. I etherically exist. I wrote you about some books for the society. I have seen a little woman. It's a medium. I have written Myers using her hand. I did do it. I, Edmund Gurney, I. And then he continued, there is no death, only a shadow. And then the light. Experiment and observation are indispensable. We have to use some method like this to communicate. So she does a cold read. Really basic stuff. And then like recites the tenets of spiritualism. Basically. But James did not think Gurney came through. And that's one of the reasons he started kind of like going, maybe not, Lenore. Maybe not. And then Myers totally bought it. And of course, Lodge also completely and totally believed it. But that is the last appearance of Mr. Edmund Gurney. I'm sure he's appeared in some circles somewhere, but it's the last time anyone have note wrote it down. <laughs> as James said, this is going to keep coming up or it's going to go away. And as we've talked about before, in the World Wars, this spiked tremendously. And it was one of the reasons for the spiritualist movement being so popular. And during the wars, we just got hundreds and hundreds of crisis apparition stories. Tell me one. Well, what better wartime crisis apparition 
story could we tell than one that kind of convinced Arthur C. Clarke? <gasps> Mysterious Universe. That is my homeboy. I used to stay out till two in the morning and watch that on reruns on Discovery Channel. And then I found out he also wrote 2001, like later. And like helped invent satellites. Yeah, that did not matter <laughs> to second grade me. So we'll definitely post a really crappy video clip of this on the website. So this is The Strange Tale by Englishwoman Georgiana Feeks. So before the Second World War, Georgiana's sister, Beatrice, and her family had immigrated to South Africa. When hostilities broke out, Georgiana's cousin, Owen Howerson, signed up and was killed in action in 1944. Soon after, Georgiana claimed that he appeared to her in England, surrounded by a golden mist. She said, He said his tank had been hit, but he still felt very much alive. Would I please tell his mum... And please give his love to poor Helen. Georgiana claims to have been dumbstruck at first. I tried to speak, although my lips were numb and frozen. Finally, she says she found her voice. I said, proof. Give me proof. So she is at the naked ghost school of things. (laughs) She's like, this is, none of this makes sense. I'm going to need hard evidence. And so he says, watch. To my amazement, he opened the top of his shirt and took out a beautiful blue flower of penetrating perfume. It was very beautiful, long and bell-like, orchid-like. A wonderful scent permeated the whole room. While I stared in amazement, he put it back in his shirt, took it out, and put it back, and took it out. And then he said quite loudly, Tell Mum, Table Mountain. And then he shimmered away and vanished. Now, none of this made any sense to Georgiana, so she wrote it once to Owen's mother, and she got a letter back from South Africa. Owen had one day gone up Table Mountain, picked a protected blue flower, and brought it home, hidden in his shirt. The flower was a rare blue orchid that grew on Table Mountain, and since it was illegal to pick, Owen had risked prison to bring it back to his mom. While showing it to her, the door slammed, and he nervously hid the flower in his shirt, only taking it out again after learning it was a false alarm. His Aunt Beatrice in South Africa had kept the story secret in order to protect Owen, who could have been imprisoned for the offense. So it does not seem likely that Georgiana could have known this story. Now, Georgiana claims that Owen appeared a second time, again in a golden mist, and she says, He approached me bitterly for not contacting Helen. I was very distressed about this because I had tried. His mother had been through all his correspondence and had found no letter from anyone named Helen or any reference to anyone with that name. But there had been a Helen in Owen's life, a lovely young woman with dark hair and eyes, for whom Owen had written romantic letters and poems. After reading the story of the Blue Orchid in the newspapers, she contacted the family, and the mystery of Helen was solved. I think that's a good one. So many details. It's so great. It's Either a very well-orchestrated farce, which is always possible and still intriguing, and I still love it, or it's a really, huh, chin-scratchy case. So, for the sake of argument and for the sake of our listeners, let's say this just, this is true. Let's assume this is true. This is a thing that you can do. But I don't want to. Stop it. Fine, for a minute. Okay, one minute. And I'll, I'll give you some science to hold you over while we're in this space. Let's ask this question. It's fascinating. Let's ask this question. What is it? What is the thing we see? I have some Einstein for you. I've heard of him. 
So three weeks before he died, Einstein sent a letter to the wife of a friend who had passed away. And he said not to worry over the departure of the friend from this strange world. His exit signifies nothing. Death signified nothing to Einstein because of his eternalistic block universe. All events coexist permanently. The separation between past, present, and future is an illusion, however stubborn, he says. That is a great idea because he had some very interesting ideas of energy and time. But I think we should also talk about some of the other theories and ideas of where these kind of crisis apparitions could come from. Let's go back to our primary resource. Let's look at what they come to in Phantasms of the Living. What's Gurney have to say about his telepathic projection theory? So let's start with what is a phantasm. I have tried to show the order of natural phenomenon to which phantasms of the living in general belong. They are to be regarded as projections of the percipient's brain by which his or her senses are deceived. So the person who's witnessing it has some trick of the mind that fools the senses into believing that they are encountering this experience. So there's probably a kernel of truth there. Now, crisis apparitions in particular says, we have further found that in a certain number of cases, which may be taken as representing the still larger number to be cited in following chapters, a phantasm of this kind is alleged to have coincided very closely in time with death or some serious crisis in the life of the person whose presence it suggested. Now, can it be a coincidence? The question for us now is whether these coincidences can or cannot be explained as accidental. If they can, then the theory of telepathy is so far applied to apparitions falls to the ground. If they cannot, the existence of telepathy as a fact of nature is proved on the evidence, and the proof could only be resisted by the assumption that the evidence, or a very large part of it, is in its main features untrustworthy. It is very necessary to distinguish these two questions, whether the evidence may be trusted, and if trusted, what it proves. It is the latter question that is now before us. And that is so great that he really did have insight into this. He was saying, Okay, maybe it is all coincidence. It is a possibility. Right. I want to try to prove it. And he's also saying, like, there are two separate questions. What I I do think is key, saying, like, either people are lying to me, which is possible, or they're not, and then what does it mean? And then another important question is whether these are ghosts or whether there's something else entirely. When therefore considering whether the phantasms of a dying person may be most fitly considered as phantasms of the dead or of the living, we find little support from analogy on the side of the posthumous apparition. On the other hand, as already hinted, we have many cases where the apparition has coincided with violent shocks, carriage accidents, fainting fits, epileptic fits, which nevertheless left the agent, as we call the person whose semblance is seen, as much alive as before. In some cases, the accident is almost a fatal one, as when a man's phantom is seen at the moment when he is half-drowned and insensible. In such a case, it would seem illogical to allow the mere fact of restoration or non-restoration to life to rank this as a phantom of a living person in one case or the phantom of a dead person in the other. It seems simpler to suppose that if two men fall overboard today, and their respective phantoms are seen by their friends at that moment, then the one man should be restored to life and not the other. Yet if the first phantom was that of a living man, so also was the second. 
So he's kind of taking on that that idea of the telepathic projection. Right. He's saying these are not ghosts. They're not coming back from the dead. This is at the moment of dying. This is a this is a phantasm of the living. This is a projection of a living agent into the mind of a loved one at a moment of extreme psychic energy where they're enduring some trauma, coming near death, experiencing a shock, etc. Yeah, and so that idea of telepathic projection is still ascribed to by many, many kind of modern spiritualists. And it's an interesting idea. It really is. But Gurney also asked some interesting questions over whether some of these details and these ideas are added on later. You know, these ideas of the subconscious really weren't around yet. Right, because Freud was still working on that. Or if people are kind of remembering this just because it's associated with the death they heard of the next day. I mean, we've had this kind of thing happen. I would say that we would fall have an experience that would fall in the 5%. Ah, but to go with that idea is that the experience you're talking about was in a dream. And a lot of these events in Gurney's book in modern times are associated with a dream state. Either while you're going to sleep, you wake up and hear it, or you're in a very like calm, relaxed place. And so we've talked about hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations before on the kind of night hag episode. And these could be related to that because we very often have hallucinations either while going to sleep or while waking up. And having a hallucination is not an abnormality. As Oliver Sacks says, we may experience hallucinations at some point in time, and there's no abnormality to isolate hallucinations without other psychological problems associated with it. It's completely normal for us to have these kind of hallucinations. Well, if Oliver Sacks says that it must be true. It sounds much better when he says it. It actually does. It literally sounds better. He's in our pantheon. I don't think we can rightfully claim him because he is in the Radio Lab Pantheon. We can share. Split the baby. They get him in spring. <laughs> okay. So you can find books and books and websites and lectures and YouTube videos just cataloging the numbers and numbers of crisis apparitions from the time of Gurney onward to modern day. There's probably a new YouTube video right now. And now. I just dreamed about it. And now. I do think it's interesting, like before we go further, the idea that it comes from a living person doesn't doesn't shock me or seem so within the bounds of my own personal reality. Like I remember one time I was driving home and I was stuck in Austin traffic and I just got like this walloping sad and started crying and I knew that I needed to call my mother. And I called her and I said, Is everything okay? And she said, yes, everything's fine. And I felt like a crazy person. And two days later, she called me and told me that she had been in the waiting room to get a lump in her breast checked out because she thought she might have cancer, but didn't want to worry me when I called and asked her if everything was okay. Okay, but I hate to do this to you, but there are plenty of other times where you say, I have a bad feeling. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. And it doesn't come to anything. And you remember the ones that do, and you have a biased recollection. And that's something that even Gurney pointed out as a possibility for these episodes. That's fine. I would rather react 
because it's been right before. Like that's just that's the difference in our personality. Like I would rather like voice it, say it out loud. And sometimes even saying it out loud lays my worries. It's the, well, only wealthy people can afford the metal casket. Like, sometimes just saying it makes the crazy go away. Right, but it doesn't prove anything. If anything, it proves that this happens frequently, in a way, but they are only rarely related to an actual event. But I I think it's still, like, a, a weighty, valid thing, and... I don't know, like it doesn't strike me as odd or outside the norm to think like you can get a feeling about somebody or that you can kind of know when something's wrong. Right, and so a lot of people have looked into those things, like those feelings, those those ideas and seeing things out of your corner at the corner of your eye and why you get that spooky feeling. Now one interesting idea, and we'll call this story the ghost in the machine. This story occurs in a garage it was kind of converted into like a makeshift lab that was being used by several engineers to design medical equipment. Oh, they're going to so debunk whatever they think happened. They give them five minutes. They got five minutes to do it. Let's do it. They're no fun. These people are no fun and they're going to take all our fun away. Oh, yeah. Engineers, no fun. So many people working there had claimed those feelings of spookiness and odd feelings, a feeling of a presence. And so one of the engineers was working on his own one night after everyone else had left, and he sat at his desk, and he just kept feeling uncomfortable. He was sweating, but cold, and had this feeling of just depression. Now, the cats were moving around, and there were groans and creaks that definitely added to that spooky vibe. But there was something else. He just knew there was something else. A presence. Right. Something was in the room with him. Now, there was no way into the lab without walking past his desk where he was sitting. And he looked around, he even checked all of the gas bottles to be sure there was not a leak in the room. Debunking. And all of them checked out fine. Bunked. And so he went on, got some coffee, returned to his desk, kept working, he was writing, and again just felt like he was being watched. And then suddenly a figure emerged to his left. It was indistinct and on the periphery of his vision but it moved like a person. The apparition was gray and made no sound. Now the hair was standing up on his neck and there was a distinct chill in the room. He recalled, it would not be unreasonable to suggest that I was terrified. He must be British. He was unable to see any details and he finally built up the courage to turn and face the thing. And as he did, it disappeared. Now another day, he would note he was working on his fencing foil in the shop. Okay, nobody was watching an engineer who was working on his fencing foil. I'm just going to go on out limb here and say that's true. Why? That's ridiculous. Because there are better things to watch, like naked ghosts. What if it was a naked ghost? Watching the man with the fencing foil? Okay, that have I. I'm back on board. Let's go. Well, he noticed that his fencing foil began to vibrate. So being the engineer, he took the blade and moved it across the room and discovered that it began to vibrate more frantically as he got to the center of the room. Because that's where the ghost was. It's where his desk was. It's where he saw the ghost. So if we're Zach Bagans, we say, Proof! 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 Look at my proof! Proof! And he says, I am an engineer. To hell with your proof. So knowing that his blade was vibrating, he knew that something, some energy, was vibrating it. And most likely, it was a sound wave. Okay. 
Now, he determined that the lab had what's called a standing wave. And this is a sound wave that's perfectly reflected back on itself. So by folding in on itself, it will create a peak energy at the center of the room. And they determined that this was caused by a fan on one end of the room. So they turned off the fan and the ghost went away? Yes. Uh. And now it's been noted that there are effects of low-frequency vibration, saying that the vibration of the body mostly affects the principal input ports, the eyes, and the principal output means hands and mouth. Exposure to vibration often results in a short-lived changes in various psychological parameters such as heart rate, at the onset of vibration exposure, increased muscle tension, and hyperventilation. And they determine that vibration of the eyeballs can cause significant smearing of the vision, thus leading to you seeing something in your peripheral vision that you could interpret, especially with this spooky feeling that you have as a figure. And now this was reported in 1998 in the Journey of the Society for Cyclical Research. Yay! They're still around, guys. They're still around. And so this is something called infrasound, a sound wave that you cannot audibly hear, but still affects us. Now, so that's Dyatlov Pass is one of the big theor- is the infrasound is one of the big theories people use to explain away Dyatlov Pass. Well, people try to use infrasound as the explanation for all ghosties and that just is not possible (laughs) okay well now you're debunking science well no it's definitely it's definitely the cause in some cases and they've proven it in other situations okay but you have to have such a specific physical circumstance to create a standing wave that would cause this kind of feeling that it could not be the cause of all of the hauntings around the world Okay. I feel like that is a, you just went skeptic, skeptic on that. Did you just meta skeptic yourself? So the reason it has to be kind of a perfect setup is because it has to be reflected back on itself almost perfectly in order to achieve its peak effect, I guess. Yes. It's the opposite of what sound canceling headphones do. So it almost amplifies the effects of sound? No, it amplifies that specific sound. I could draw you a diagram. This is like college-level physics. Just I'm, trust me. I trust you. I trust you. So tell me another science way that we can describe what ghosties are. Well, one other theory that's very popular is electromagnetic frequencies. Oh, EMF detectors. Again, I shall say to you, Zach Bagans, he has those. Dude, bro. Dude, bro. Ghost. Dude, bro. Dude, ghost. When the light turns red, there's really a ghost. Like 80 of them. So electromagnetic waves are very popular. And this is something that fits a little better than infrasound because EM waves can be created by any electronic device. Okay. And we have electronic devices everywhere. Right. Of course, you know who didn't have electronic devices everywhere? Edmund Gurney and yeah. his ilk. Yeah. The Victorians. So, I mean, that kind of debunks it right there. But anyway, let's talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Would you stop debunking your debunking? It's fun. So... One person that is a huge supporter of electromagnetic frequencies causing this is Michael Persinger. God helmet? Yes. I remember that dude. We can find out more about that dude on our exorcism episode. Yes. And so he was asked in 1996 by a teenager's mother to investigate her daughter. She had been receiving nocturnal visits, one sexual, from the Holy Spirit. That does not sound holy. 
Now, the 17-year-old girl, who had a little bit of brain damage from birth, said she also felt the presence of an invisible baby perched on her left shoulder. Oh, my God. Ugh. Yuck. Okay. Now, they found an electric clock next to her bed that was about 10 inches from where she slept. Tests showed that the clock generated EM pulses with waveforms similar to those found to trigger epileptic seizures in rats and humans. Fun, good clock. And when Let's they all have a clock yeah. like that. And then when they removed the clock, she stopped feeling the baby and having sex with the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, yes. Aww. So. Persinger determined that the clock, along with the girl's brain injury, were highly likely to have contributed factors to the perceived nocturnal visits. So, again, a perfect storm. It is. So, another researcher, Christopher French, decided to build a haunted room. So, he killed 17 people in it. No, not like that. Okay. So, he took a cool, dimly lit room and rigged it with infrasound and EM sources. He took 79 men and women volunteers and put them in this room. Okay. Now, before he put them in, he did a evaluation called the Australian Sheep-Goat Scale. Are you serious? Which tries to separate likely believers, sheep, from skeptics, goats. <laughs> so, they would ask questions like, do you believe in life after death? And if the subject had ever experienced an episode of precognition... So the volunteers were exposed to EM pulses, to infrasound, both or neither. And most people reported some slightly odd sensations, maybe a presence or feeling dizzy. But a few reported the feelings of terror. So maybe there's something unique in their brain chemistry or something. Well, they were also primed. They were primed with this questionnaire. That asked them if they believed in life after death. Even if they said no, they were now thinking, is there life after death? Right. So when you get that spooky feeling, you automatically, or I should say you subconsciously, can associate it. Especially if you're a sheep. Sheeple. But French said that he and his colleagues could not conclude that EMFs played a role in necessarily conjuring these feelings. So this is unlikely to be the cause of afterlife visits. Okay, so I see that there are holes in this research. I see that it's not like a definitive like mosquito bite malaria cause and effect. But I would go a step further and say that it's even more unlikely that you'll be in the perfect storm at the moment that a loved one dies or, you know, shortly before or when someone's experiencing crisis. Like the idea that you're going to have these perfect physical surroundings in a moment where you have a life circumstance arise that would create it just seems so unlikely that the these two things would coincide it seems like there has to be something that is not related to your physical space like more internal that causes these hallucinations apparitions ghosties well so something we definitely need to talk about in this case are grief or mourning hallucinations and so this is a very very common normal thing. So one researcher, Agneta Grimby at the University of Göteborg, found that over 80% of elderly people experience hallucinations associated with their dead partner one month after bereavement. And almost a third of the people reported that they had spoke in response to their experiences. These weren't just peripheral hallucinations. 
And now the likelihood of these hallucinations occurring increased with the length of marriage and were also affected with how happy they were in their marriage. And they can persist for months or even years. Now, sometimes these can be distressing. There was a 2002 case report from Germany that described how a middle-aged woman whose daughter had died of a heroin overdose regularly saw the young girl and sometimes heard her say things like, Mama, and it's so cold. I don't like that one. But most of the time, almost all of the time, they're comforting. One researcher wrote that overall, evidence suggests a strikingly high prevalence of these, ranging from 30 to 60%. And psychiatrist Dr. Jerome Scheck theorized that these mourning bereavement-related hallucinations represent a compensatory effort to cope with the drastic sense of loss. Now, Oliver Sacks commented that hallucinations can have a positive and comforting role. Seeing the face or hearing the voice of one's deceased spouse, sibling, parent, or child can play an important role in the mourning process. So this is from a paper called Continuing Bonds from a Discourse Analytic Perspective by Justyna Zulkowski. And it's published by a Polish research group in 2015. It examines the different grieving processes and the different ways in which we discuss grief. Does it talk about Bridge to Terabithia? No. Did you I cry cried. in the back seat? I cried in my car when I was in fifth grade. But in grief research or bereavement research, a continuing bond usually describes what is understood as a presence of an ongoing inner relationship with the deceased person by a bereaved survivor. This is an alternative to the view that most models of grief prior to the 90s took that, that the purpose of grieving was to sever ties with the deceased in order to make new attachments. But it's something, it's impossible. Right. But if you look at your, you're like Kubler-Ross. Okay, so Kubler-Ross grief scale. Do you remember them? I know you do. I know you want to say them. Are you not raising your hands? I don't want to be called on. I had to write a paper about it in the fifth grade. <laughs> With Bridge to Terabithia? Did you really? Yeah, it was Honors English. <laughs> super fun. I did a puppet show. You had such a good education. No, I really did. It was like we had to create some kind of multimedia project to go along with it. And my idea was to do this shadow puppet thing. It was very arty and probably heralded my eventual weirdness. And yeah. So Kubler-Ross is, for all of you, here's a handy mnemonic device that I made up when I was in high school. Destinate beans during algebra. So D. Denial. A. Anger. B. Bargaining. D. Depression. A. Acceptance. And so in the traditional models of grief, that acceptance would be the severing of ties. But this idea, the idea of the continuing bond, supposes that acceptance doesn't have to look that way. That it can retain an internal bond so long as it's not pathological. So many researchers believe that a bond can continue and still allow the process of grieving to be completed. Though... They cite that it can be maladaptive in certain conditions. In some instances, explored, externalized, continuing bond expression that evolves into illusion or hallucinations about the deceased and showed positive association with complicated grief symptoms and poor adaptation to bereavement. I mean, it's like we talked about with the post-bereavement hallucinations. Like, most of the time, it's okay. Occasionally, it can go 
too far. And I think that would be like people who believe they're being haunted or taunted in some way or, you or know, punished. Yes. I think that when you have a negative association with it, I'm sure that it gets to that place much more quickly. But this study found that there was a tendency to discuss grief in the plural pronoun set. We or my family, etc. Ah, uh, the Faulknerian collective we. You know where it's actually used really effectively? The collective we in novels. Where? Virgin Suicides. I was shocked because he's so not Southern, and it's such a Southern thing. It's really, really done well in Virgin Suicides. I can see the Greeks going for it. Oh, you're right. Maybe it's the Greek The chorus? Thing. Yes, it's the chorus. Oh my God, that's totally what he's doing. I just realized it. Thanks. Thanks for that. You who has not read the book. I haven't um, read it. <laughs> I read Middlesex. It was good. Jeffrey Eugenides. Everybody get on board. Pause, go read it. Anyway, but it's also rare for people to speak of that collective group's emotions. There's a noticeable tendency to speak of visible signs of bereavement, like visiting graves, planning funerals, how often they're crying or talking about the person. However, this is very different when the participants speak of a continuing bond. This is one sample from their study. Now, when my father died, I bought gold earrings for myself, and the earrings were like a symbol, which I simply, I decided they would simply be a memento of my father, and I always put them on, these earrings. And when, for example, I feel sad or something, I don't know, I talk to my father, for example, perhaps it's a bit, I don't know, but the earrings are a huge symbol for me, for how I feel, symbol for me, how I feel bad. So I always put them on, this memento, and in that moment, I feel better. I mean, good in sense that I don't know, for example, it just seems to establish the spiritual contact with him. And then I simply talk to him, maybe I talk to myself, but I think I talk to him. It's a great example of how this can be normal. Oh, I definitely, like, when I go home to visit my family, I stop by the cemetery. And a lot of people think that's really macabre, but I grew up going to the cemetery. It was a happy place for me. Like, some of my earliest, happiest memories are going with my mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother to go clean the graves and put new flowers. And we would, like, literally take cleaning buckets and scrub buckets and go and spend a day tending the cemetery. And so... It's weird because I have memories of my great-grandmother living in that space, and it's now where she's buried, but I go there and I sit and I speak out loud because it is in the middle of nowhere in North Louisiana, and it's not like anybody's going to walk up on me and think I'm schizophrenic and commit me. Right, but that is a similar theme you see in these stories, and I mean, you can just think of in your own personal life of people kind of going to the grave and talking to the person that's deceased. There's a woman I know from where I grew up, whose son was killed in a car accident like before I was born. And he has a mailbox there and she brings him, she just fills it with notebooks. And when one gets full, she replaces it and she just writes some letters. I think it probably goes a little bit too far because it does consume a lot of her waking life. But, but something like that could be done in a healthy way. Right. And something's used in therapy to write letters to the deceased to let them know how you feel if you miss them, if you're sorry about something. Or if you had unfinished business, that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there are three significant things to note about that last story I told. Um, the story cannot be seen as evidence of anything outside the story. So they're not trying to put it forward as an example of like haunting or actual spirit contact. Which is different than Gurney's approach, one might care to note. I would note. You note. The bond is reinforced by a verbal process. Instead of talking about the deceased, as with the group, she talks to him. She explicitly acknowledges her mental and emotional state in a way that does not happen when they talk about that collective grieving process. 
So she's allowed to become an active agent in the process. And you can see the similarities in other stories. Here's one example. I prefer, as I say, to talk to him and look in the sky and talk to him. I don't have to be at the cemetery because for me, he's everywhere. I simply feel safe by him. And I feel if I have a problem or something like that, I can talk to him. Post-death contact is a sense of presence experience, feeling of the bereaved that the deceased person is reaching out. And the linguistic construction of these stories illustrates that there's a reciprocal feeling that's excited by these experiences. So you're able to feel that person's affection. You're able to feel that person's place in your life whatever you needed from them when they were alive you can continue to draw on after death all right so you can still have that bond yes so the bond is related to social expectations we see this when bereaved families go to graves and carry out those rituals as we were talking about sort of the social obligations for the deceased because this construction of it this practical construction is a social bond between the bereaved and the deceased. However, these stories illustrate that personal bonds survive death as well as social bonds, and that those can be nurtured and provide meaningful outlets and experiences for the bereaved. So that is an important element that people like Gurney missed out on, is that we're getting something out of this. You know, we're able to experience that bond and that love or affection that we had for this person that's now gone and it's a way for us to in mostly a healthy way still keep a connection with them right and i don't think that that was lost on him because he was very interested in the idea of like the subconscious it was just beginning to be explored around that time and this you know psychiatry and psychology were very much in their infancy at that moment and so he lacked the context but he knew it was something about what that person represented to you and how you projected your experiences with them. And I think that's really echoed in this research. I guess I can see that. He's saying that you are recalling your memories. You are recalling how they remember them. Even if he thought it was by telepathy. Maybe it's more out of grief. So I talked about Mark Twain a little bit earlier. But y'all know better than that. Y'all know that that is not going to be enough Mark Twain for me to do on an episode. And I have always really loved the idea of Mark Twain as the sort of tragic humorist. But Mark Twain did have a very keen interest in psychical research and the paranormal and spiritualism. And now he professed to be a skeptic because... He's Mark Twain. Yeah, he's skeptical of everything. That's half the fun of being alive. See exhibits A and B. Hi, B. Hi. But I'm going to talk a little bit more now about his later life experiences and some of his thoughts on the matter. So he wrote to the Montana Post in 1866, As I have said before, it is safest to stick to the old regular plan of salvation and not speculate on these new unprospected wildcat religions. I regard spiritualism as a wildcat and shall continue to do so until they get down on it deeper and show the wall rock on both sides and prove that they've got a ledge. So Mark Twain entertained an interest in spiritualism, though publicly he ridiculed it. Twain was flippy floppy about spiritualism in the afterlife. One minute he allows his wife to attend a seance, and the next he says it's poppycock. An exhibit curator, Mallory Howard, at the Spiritualism Seances and Sam exhibit at the Mark Twain House and Museum said, He was always trying to figure out an answer without ever coming to a conclusion. So Twain's later years were very 
marked by loss. And the first significant loss for him was his daughter. Well, he had a son who died, but the son was very young. In his later years, his first major loss was his daughter, Susie. Susie was her father's first and favorite daughter. Every biography I've read of her says this. I believe he would have a favorite. Uh, And tell them. I kind of buy it. So she died of meningitis while Clemens was in Europe. Oh, wow. So he couldn't even get to her. No, but his wife got home in time to be with her when she died. Or she at least lied to him forever and said she did. She was 24 at the time of her death. That's probably what happened. And he says of her, she was a magazine of feelings. And they were all kinds and all shades of force. She was so volatile as a little child that sometimes the whole battery came into play in the short compass of a day. She was full of life, full of activity, full of fire. Her waking hours were crowding and hurrying procession of enthusiasms. Sorrow, joy, anger, remorse, storm, sunshine, rain, darkness. They were all there. They all came in a moment, and they were all gone just as quickly. In all things, she was intense, and her characteristics were not a mere glow, dispensing warmth, but a consuming fire. And that's from a private manuscript that he wrote called A Family Portrait about her after her death. And on her tombstone, he had the poem, Warm summer sun, shine kindly here. Warm southern wind, blow softly here. Green sod above, lie light, lie light. Good night, dear heart, good night, good night. He found this poem in a random book of poetry and couldn't find the author's name and had it put on his daughter's tombstone because it is beautiful it's perfect um but after years and years of people like attributing it to him he like sent out an all call like this would be the equivalent of going on twitter back in the day and he wrote out and was like can anyone find out who wrote this and once he found the author's name which is robert richardson he had it engraved on her tombstone as well so people would stop crediting him with someone else's work good guy cited his sources on a tombstone he wrote a letter to one of his friends describing his experience of losing his daughter And this is what he says. You've seen our whole voyage. You've seen us go to sea, a cloud of sail, and a flag of peak. And you see us now, chartless, adrift, derelicts, battered, waterlogged. Our sails, a ruck of rags, our pride gone. For it is gone, and there is nothing in its place. The vanity of life was all we had, and there is no more vanity left in us. We are even ashamed that we had, ashamed that we trusted the promises of life and build it high to come to this. I did know that Susie was part of us. I did not know that she could go away. I did not know that she could go away and take our lives with her, yet leave our dull bodies behind. And I did not know what she was. To me, she was but treasure in the bank, the amount known, the need to look at it daily, handle it, weigh it, count it, realize it not necessary. And now that I would do it, It is too late. They tell me it is not there. It has vanished away in the night. The bank is broken. My fortune gone. I am a pauper. How am I to comprehend this? How am I to have it? Why am I robbed? Who has benefited? God, that's heartbreaking. This is a humorist. This is a funny man. This is a man who's remembered for his humor. And I think that he writes about tragedy in a more honest and raw way than... 98% of writers who try to write about it. Right. But I mean, to know humor, you have to know the dark side of humanity. Which is why Southern humor is the best humor. (laughs) So after Susie's death, his wife Olivia did try to contact her during a seance, but it was never successful. In a letter to Reverend J.H. Twitchell on March 4th, 
he wrote, Susie's gone, George is gone, Lou Hammersley, Ned Bunch, Henry Robinson, friends passing one by one. Our house, where such warm blood and such dear blood flowed so freely, has become a cemetery, but not in any repellent sense. Our dead are welcome there. There, life made it beautiful. Their death has hallowed it. We shall have them with us always, and there will be no parting. Definitely touching on that element that even though they're gone, they're not. I think that you see him sort of like longing for any connection, and he's willing to sit in a a cemetery, which is his home, and wallow in their memory just to be close to them. It's like it hurts every time you look at it, or it hurts every time you touch it, but he can't stop touching the grief. Say, it's like Bridge to Terabithia when um, he's like, I would forget for a minute and then remember, and it's like biting down on an ulcer, <laughs> which I always thought was such a perfect description of like when a fresh grief where you feel guilty for going and getting food, you know? Like, why can I be happy? Why am I eating? There are so many horrible things to worry about. But his wife died a few years after his daughter. And that was very hard on him because he was very much in love with her all of his life. He loved Olivia, loved him some Olivia. But then his youngest daughter, Jean, moved back home with him after spending a good part of her life in sanitariums. She and her father had only recently reconciled and become close. She was epileptic and it took a lot of effort to care for her because, you know. Yeah, especially at that time. Yes, this is 1909. But he had brought her home. And she died of what was apparently an epileptic fit followed by a heart attack on Christmas Eve of 1909. And he wrote this as the final chapter to his autobiography. This is the note he left on top of it. He says, I'm setting it down. I finished it. Read it. I can form no opinion of it myself. But if you think it worthy someday at the proper time, it can end my autobiography. It is the final chapter. He writes, Jean is dead. Has anyone ever tried to put upon paper all the little happenings connected with a dear one, happenings of the 24 hours preceding that sudden and unexpected death of that dear one? Would a book contain them? Would two books contain them? I think not. They pour into my mind in a flood. They are little things that have always been happening every day and were always so unimportant and so easily forgettable before. But now, now, how different how precious they are, how dear, how unforgettable, how pathetic, how sacred, how clothed with dignity. Would I bring her back to life if I could do it? I would not. If a word would do it, I would beg for the strength to withhold the word. And I would have the strength, I'm sure of it. In her lost, I'm almost bankrupt. And my life is a bitterness. But I'm content. For she has been enriched, the most precious of all gifts. That gift which makes all other gifts mean and poor. Death. I have never wanted any released friend of mine restored to life since I reached manhood. I felt this way when Susie passed away, and later my wife, and later Mr. Rogers, when Clara met me at the station in New York and told me Rogers had died. Suddenly that morning my thought was, Oh, favorite of fortune, fortunate all his long and lovely life, fortunate to his latest moment. The reporter said, there were tears of sorrow in my eyes. True. But they were for me, not for him. 
he had suffered no loss. All the fortunes he had ever made before were poverty compared to this one. Why did I build this house two years ago? To shelter this vast emptiness? How foolish I was, but I shall stay in it. The spirits of the dead hallow a house for me. It was not so with other members of my family. Susie died in the house we built in Hartford, and Mrs. Clemens would never enter it again. But it made the house dearer to me. I've entered it once since, when it was tenantless and silent and forlorn, but to me it was a holy place and beautiful. It seemed to me the spirits of the dead were all about me and would speak to me and welcome me. Livy and Susie and George and Henry and Charles Dudley Warner, how good and kind they were, how lovable their lives. In fancy, I could see them all again. I could call the children back and hear them romp again. But I shall stay in this house. It is dearer to me tonight than ever it was before. Jean's spirit will make it beautiful for me always, her lonely, tragic death. But I will not think of it that now. Christmas night. This afternoon they took her away from her room. As soon as I might, I went down to the library, and there she lay in her coffin, dressed in exactly the same clothes that she wore when she stood at the other end of the same room on the 6th of October last, as Clara's chief bridesmaid. Her face was radiant with happy excitement then. It was the same face now, with the dignity of death and the peace of God upon it. From her windows I saw the hearse and carriages lined along the road and gradually grow vague and spectral in the falling snow and presently disappear. Jean was gone out of my life and would not come back any more. 2.30 p.m. It is the appointed time the funeral has begun, 400 miles away. But I can see it all, just as if I were there. The scene in the library in the Langdon homestead. Jean's coffin stands, where her mother and I stood 40 years ago and were married. And where Susie's coffin stood 13 years ago. And where her mother's coffin stood 5 years ago. And where mine will stand a little time later. And true to his word, he died 4 months later. He said, life is not a valuable gift, but death was. Life was a fever dream made up of joys embittered by sorrows, pleasure, poison, pain. A dream that was a nightmare of confusion, of spasmodic feelings, of fleeting delights, ecstasies, exultations, happiness interspersed with long-drawn miseries, griefs, perils, horrors, disappointments, defeats, humiliation, and despair. The heaviest curse devisable by the divine ingenuity. But death was sweet. Death was gentle. Death was kind. Death healed the bruised spirit and the broken heart, and gave them rest and forgetfulness. Death was man's best friend. When man could endure life no longer, death came and set him free. From Letters from Earth. So you can see in that letter how Twain's really embracing that idea of death, and he does in all of his writing. Mm-hmm. Now he knows it's something that's always there. It's an ever-present reality and a possibility. It's not. It's the end of possibility. And I think that's what he yearns for. Because when the possibilities are terrible and overwhelming, you want that predictability. But he does acknowledge that those possibilities aren't over for the person that's still alive. He says, I'm not sorry for the person that died. The tears are for me. And for Twain, what hurt and what was hard and what was almost unbearable was not when the ghost of his brother came to tell him 
that he was going to die or when he had the vision of his brother's death. For him, the hardest thing was when the ghost didn't come, when the contact was severed. And when all we had left were the stories of our loved ones. And maybe those, those messages of the dead, maybe not from them. Those are not just a story. No, they're not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen.